Vorspiel On the 26th of August, 1876, as the last notes of the first performance of The Twilight of the Gods died away in the newly built Festspielhaus in the tiny Bavarian town of Bayreuth, two thousand people sat shaken, inspired, enchanted, or appalled. Among them were the musical aristocracy of Europe, Liszt, Saint-Saëns, Tchaikovsky, Anton Rubinstein, Grieg, and Bruckner, along with a good sprinkling of the actual aristocracy of Europe, two emperors, three kings, a handful of princes, two grand dukes. All of them, or almost all of them, were swept along on a cataclysm of emotion to equal anything that had happened on stage that evening. As the applause grew and grew, and before singers or conductor or designer or choreographer had appeared in front of the curtain to acknowledge it, a diminutive, stooping figure, familiar not just to the faithful but to the cultured world at large, the subject of a dozen photo shoots, two dozen portraits, and a thousand cartoons, made his way somewhat lopsidedly to the front of the stage. His disproportionately huge head, with its madly bulging eyes, was topped by a floppy velvet cap set at a rakish angle. This man, this tiny man, sixty-three years old, but looking, Tchaikovsky thought, ancient and frail, was the hero of the hour, the sole architect of the vast four-day, fifteen-hour epic, every one of whose thousands and thousands of words and thousands and thousands of notes he had created, unleashing onto the vast stage gods and dwarves, dragons and songbirds, women warriors on horseback, and maidens disporting themselves in the Rhine, digging deeply and unsettlingly into the subconscious, discharging in his audience emotions that were oceanic and engulfing, this man was the architect of all that, the architect, indeed, in all but name, of the very theatre in which the heaving, roaring audience sat. There he stood before them, the self-proclaimed musician of the future. He held a hand up, and in the ensuing silence, in the marked Saxon accent which he never made the slightest attempt to lose, he said, "'Now you've seen what I want to achieve in art, and you've seen what my artists, what we, can achieve. If you want the same thing, we shall have an art.' That was the way he spoke. By we, he meant, of course, the German people. The first, the most important thing he had to say was that the great work he had brought into existence was, above all else, German. At a celebratory banquet the following night, after an interminable and obscure speech by a Reichstag deputy, the Hungarian politician, Count Albert Aponyi, leapt to his feet unannounced, and said, Brunhilde, the new national art, lay asleep on a rock, surrounded by a great fire. The god Wotan had lit this fire, so that only the victorious and finest hero, a hero who knew no fear, would win her as his bride. Around the rock were mountains of ash and clinker, the crossbreeding of our own music with non-German elements. Along came a hero the like of whom had never been seen before, Richard Wagner, who forged a weapon from the fragments of the sword of his fathers, the classical German masters, and with this sword penetrated the fire, and with his kiss he awoke the sleeping Brunhilde. Hail to you, victorious light, she cried, and with her we join our voices. Three cheers to our master, Richard Wagner. Hip-hip, hip-hip, hip-hip. So that was it. Wagner was the hero of the newly unified German Reich, which had come into being just five years earlier, and his music 
was its music. Many people, including many Germans, felt very uncomfortable about this new Germany, and the Ring of the Nibelung seemed to embody in its grandiosity, its self-celebrating Teutonic tub-thumping, its primitivism, everything that worried them about it. Wagner himself, after a brief and unsuccessful flirtation with the masters of the new establishment, was already somewhat unenamoured of their policies. To his immeasurable disgust, one of Reich Kanzler Bismarck's first acts had been to give the vote to Jews. Wagner also, more surprisingly, loathed the new climate of militarism and imperialism. He withdrew back into the kingdom of art, where he would always be absolute monarch, where his will would always prevail, where he could explore the depths and the heights of human experience, by which he meant, of course, his own experience. None of this, Wagner's creation of a new...